Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now with a revival message, Mr. John Moore. Good morning. The last few days I've been giving a lot of thought to uh, the various uh, events and achievements in in all of our lives that require preparation. For example, in the educational process, to graduate from grade school to middle school, on to high school, college, graduate school, each uh, time we move up, we have to prepare, we have to study, we have to learn. We have to uh, endure testing and to to give evidence of the fact that we've learned the material. And uh, not only in our educational experience, but also for the woman who's expecting her first child. Anyone uh, who has children knows that that very first one, there's a lot of things that have to happen around the house getting ready, preparing for a, a, a new life to be added to that household. And then here we are, what we're uh, just a little over two months until Christmas. And I know that uh, some of you will be expecting uh, friends and family members to come and visit, and there will need to be some preparation for all of that. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with revival meetings? Well, it may interest you to know, to remind you that there was a man in the Bible whose sole responsibility was preparation. That was in the entirety of his ministry. We know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And uh, John's responsibility was to prepare an entire generation for the coming of Jesus Christ. And again, you may say, well, what still, what does that have to do with revival? Well, it sort of makes up my own private definition of what revival is. Revival, folks, is uh, nothing short than a fresh coming of Jesus Christ to the heart of the believer. Now, think about that. Just chew on that for a minute. A fresh coming of Jesus Christ to the heart of the believer. And I, I don't, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm not trying to embarrass you. But I do challenge you to answer this question privately in your own heart. Isn't that really what you need? And really, when all is said and done, isn't that really what you want? down in the depths of your heart, more than anything else, more than any other material thing, to have a fresh encounter with the Lord, a fresh coming of Jesus to the heart of the believer. After all, that goes well with the definition of revival. The very term revival, of course, is an Old Testament word. It comes from a root word, which means to make lively and is preceded by the prefix re, which means again. So when you take it all together, the term means to, may, to be made lively again. 
And you can't make something lively again that's never had life. I'd have sworn if I'd have said that and you'd have heard it, you'd have said amen. (laughs) You can't make something lively again that's never had life. There you go. I knew you had it in you. And so revival is a fresh coming of Jesus to the heart. So if you will, open your Bible or your iPhone app to your Bible to Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture beginning with verse 2. Once you've found the place, let's all stand as we honor the reading of God's precious Word. Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 2, you follow along silently while I read aloud. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we're here today to be honest with you and to be honest with ourselves. We're in a mess here in America. We've made a mess of things, and it's so easy to blame somebody else. But when it comes right down to it, you look to your people. And so today, as we listen to what you have to say from your word, As we consider it in our mind and in our heart, I pray that our response to you will be one that brings pleasure to your heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A fresh coming of Jesus to the heart. If that's going to take place, whether it's this week or any other week, first of all, we'll have to respect the Lord's counsel. Look again at verse 2. In verse 2, the Bible says that during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias. Now, I think it's noteworthy to point out that John didn't come to the word, but the Bible says that the word came to John. In other words, John wasn't hating the beckoning of his mother, saying, son, I wish you'd go into ministry. Or he didn't say to himself, you know, I can't think of anything else to do. I guess I could always go in the ministry. No. John didn't come to the Word. The Word came to John. And that brings up a very interesting question. Where do you get your counsel? Who influences you? To whom do you listen Uh, I have an idea that maybe some young people would say a parent or my parents or a coach or a teacher. Maybe some adults would say, well, an author, a philosopher, 
a particular favorite. Maybe some would even say, well, maybe even a news commentator. I, I really listen. I really like to listen to them. I pay attention to their counsel. Listen to me. Hear me well. We'll never see a real revival in this generation unless we start getting our counsel from those to whom the word of the Lord has come. And something you need to know about us, folks. Oftentimes, those to whom the word of the Lord have come, has come are unorthodox messengers. Look at how verse 2 ends. The Bible says in verse 2, the, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Did you hear that? In the wilderness. And this is going to be a shock to some of you. John wasn't a city preacher. That's right. He wasn't the pastor of some megachurch in the suburbs. He was out in the country. I get the distinct impression about John, the more I read about him is, he wasn't so much a people person. Well, I know we highly prize that. I don't think it's the kind of guy you'd take to the Rotary Club and introduce as your new pastor. He didn't get along real well with a lot of people. He was an unorthodox messenger. But the one thing I'll tell you about, maybe some are unorthodox, all who, uh, to whom the word of the Lord has come are those who have an unpopular message. Look at verse 3. The Bible says that John came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you know what John had the gall to do? You know what he had the nerve to do? He demanded that people deal openly with their sins and to repent publicly of their sins. I have an idea that that wouldn't go over real well in a lot of places today in America. Those who decline, those who get upset about dealing openly with sin, basically, in my estimation, or as Ron Dunn used to say, in my humble but accurate opinion, it's okay, we voted. I talked to the pastor between services and we voted in, in, in business meeting, it's okay to laugh. It only passed by a couple of votes, but it did pass. <laughs> and uh, in, in, in my estimation, as I've traveled around the country, there are three basic groups of people in our churches. And the first group I've classified as sinless. Don't, don't see any down here. Maybe up here. No. None of us are sinless. Is, is this on? Because I know if you'd have heard that, you'd have said amen. None of us are sinless. 
And so, how to classify people in our churches then? And I think the tempting thing would do just to say, okay, everybody that won't deal with that, everybody that won't deal with their sin, they're stubborn. And we are Baptist. I said we are Baptist. We have a reputation to uphold. But as simple as it would be to just group everybody in that great big category, I don't believe that for a moment. And that's not been my observation as I've traveled around from churches to churches. I, I think uh, there is a third group in our churches that's the largest group. Not sinless, not stubborn. A group I call seduced. Seduced. Seduced into thinking that all it takes to be a, quote, good Christian is to attend church regularly. To give something of money to help support the work of the church. To participate when asked to do, to volunteer, to help. And we've bought into the line that it's a matter of do's and don'ts. If we don't do the don'ts, and if we do the do's, we're okay. If you want a good look at what it means to know what it means, how to respond to the Lord, and how to respond when He brings conviction by means of His Holy Spirit taking the Word and applying it to your heart and life, all you have to do is look at the first two kings of Israel. One is a prime example of how not to do it, and the second is a prime example of how to deal with sin in your life. The first king, you remember, was Saul. And Saul did sin, didn't he? Remember, if you can't say amen, this is yes. <laughs> and Saul then did sin, didn't he? He was told expressly by the prophet Samuel, the Lord gave him a message, and he said, listen, you're to, to totally exterminate the Amalekites. You remember the Amalekites when the children of Israel came out of Egyptian bondage. They attacked them. They killed them. They mistreated them. And the Lord said, I want them totally done away with. I want them exterminated. And, he get, and, and Samuel passed on that message to Saul. But did Saul obey? This is no. Saul didn't obey. He disobeyed. He sinned against God. And the Lord sent Samuel back to Saul to confront him with his sin. And initially, Saul refused to acknowledge his sin, refused to confess his sin. Now, he admitted his sin eventually. But folks, there's something we need to learn this week. If you haven't already learned it, it's time, past time to learn it. There's a difference between admitting sin and confessing sin. Well, it's easy to admit sin. Oh, yeah, we all sin. I sin so much. So what? Confession of sin, the very term confess in the New Testament literally means to say the same thing. What it means is you agree with God. You don't look at it, at it as something trivial or unimportant. It's a sin against a holy God. It's 
Stark rebellion against God. That's confession of sin. And Saul admitted his sin, but he didn't confess his sin. And then he wound up blaming it on the people. The only reason I did it is because people wanted me to. Now that's in contrast to the second king of Israel, David. Did David sin? Oh yeah. An even more horrible, horrific sin than the first king, Saul. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. She became pregnant, was going to have a child. David didn't want anybody to know. He didn't want people to know. He certainly didn't want her husband to find out. So he sent word to his commander-in-chief of his armies, Abner, put Uriah, the, the, the husband of Bathsheba, up in the forefront of the battle, then withdraw the rest of the troops. And what happened? He was killed. But God saw it as murder on the part of David. And so Nathan was sent to David. And by the way, if you think it's an easy matter to confront people with their sin, just remember that David was the most, at that point in time, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. One word, he could have had Nathan's head removed. But Nathan courageously did as the Lord commanded him, and he confronted David with his sin. And David confessed his sin. I have sinned against thee. Thee only have I sinned, he said to the Lord. And Nathan gave the response of the Lord, said, The Lord has put away thy sin. There's a thing that many of you have heard. Some of you have heard it in boardrooms of corporations. Others of it have heard it in school. Others have heard it right here in this church. I'm referring to the definition of insanity. What is insanity? Insanity is keeping doing things the same way over and over and over again, expecting different results. That's insanity. And what we've been doing in our churches is insanity. Ignoring our sins. Covering over our sins. Well, that's acting like Saul, blaming somebody else. And we do have some easy targets, don't we, in politicians. I said we do have some easy targets <laughs> in politicians. But that's blaming somebody else. That's not confessing sins. That's not dealing with sin. That's insanity. Not only are we going to have to respect the Lord's counsel, if we have any hope of genuine revival in our generation, we're going to have to respond to the Lord's conditions as well. Verse 4. John, at this point, quotes from the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah. He says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
Now, to John's listeners, they would completely have understood that. It's something that's not clear to us today. Keep in mind, we're, de- we're dealing here with centuries ago. And in those days and times, there were no paved pavements. There were no six-lane highways. They were just simply paths in the wilderness. And before a king would visit a, an extreme the long distance away portion of his kingdom, he wouldn't just go there unannounced, but he would send messengers. And the messengers would go to that city or that area and give the news. Now, on such, at such and such a time, on such and such a date, the king will be here. So you need to prepare. And immediately, once those messengers came, work crews were sent out to repair the roadways to repair the paths that had been washed away by rains or trees falling across the path. And they would make ready the way of the coming of the king. And if we have any hope for revival, just as our pastor has already indicated to us, the only one who can produce revival, the only one who can bring revival is the Lord himself. But just as He is the only one that can produce it, we are responsible to prepare for it. Look at verse 5. You say, how are we to prepare? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Here's the answer in verse 5. First of all, we're going to have to deal with the low spots. Listen to me. Hear me. There's not anyone in this room, including, and first of all, this preacher, who is not living below the level of grace that's available to us in Christ. It's time we quit ignoring that. I said, it's time we quit ignoring that. It's time to deal with the low spots in our life. And not only are we going to need to deal with the low spots, we're going to have to deal with the high spots. He says in verse 5, every mountain and hill will be brought low. In 1987, my wife Phyllis and I, for a month, ministered to military churches. We had many, at that day and time, many military in Western Europe. We were in West Germany. And we uh, ministered to families, military families in Western Germany. And on one of those trips, we took a train from uh, uh, somewhere. (laughs) Frankfurt, thank you. You didn't know that preachers used, uh, had to have their wives to support, did <laughs> From Frankfurt to Cologne. And on that train trip, we followed the Rhine River. And that was in the Rhine Valley. And boy, we stayed glued to the window, looking out at the sights. We, count, we counted over 20 castles between those two cities as we travel on that trip. 
And I noticed something about every one of those communities there. They were living around that castle. They were bordered on both sides by mountain ranges. And those mountain ranges acted as barriers between one group and another group, one city and another city, one settlement and another settlement. But let me tell you something, folks. What you and I have done successfully in our generation, we've built our own barriers. We have ethnic barriers, racial barriers, educational barriers, monetary barriers, and if we have any hope of revival in our generation, we're going to have to pull those barriers down that separate us one from another. And not only the low spots and the high spots, but the crooked spots. The crooked will become straight. Time to time I'm asked to preach a at a Bible conference. And many times I'm preaching alongside pastors. And occasionally there will be a member of his congregation there and they'll be impressive, or at least impressive to me, and I'll make a comment about how impressive they are. Sometimes there's a response like this. You know, the sad thing about that individual is they seem to be constantly learning more intellectually from the Bible, but rarely does it seem to make any difference in the way they live. Always learning, but rarely translated into living. And if we have any hope of revival in our generation, folks, we're going to have to straighten out the crooked spots. And then finally, we're going to have to deal with the rough spots. The rough, ro- the rough roads are to be made smooth. What are the rough roads? Somebody has said, it seems like in this generation that if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from many of our churches, they would just keep on plugging along. Doing spiritual work in the energy of the religious flesh. And if we have any hope of revival this week or any other week of this generation, We're going to have to deal with all those things. If I mention the name of J. Edwin Orr, likely very few of you would recognize the name. Dr. Orr was uh, one of the leading historians on the subject of revival. He died a number of years ago. Uh, he He died in his sleep in the Ridgecrest Baptist Assembly out in North Carolina. He was there because he was preaching a Bible conference. And it's interesting that this eminent historian on the subject of revival, the night before he died that morning in his sleep, he preached 
And the last person, the last sermon this great man of God preached was entitled, Revival is like Judgment Day. So many people have a misconception of revival. They think it's all fluff, all ha-ha-ha, all hot dog, and jump up on the pew. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are times, there's definitely a time when revival is a time of celebration, a time of thanksgiving, a time of praise and blessing to the Lord, who's the one who sends it. But the time that leads up to that is anything but a celebration. If you think I'm promising you something that's rosy and pain-free, you're entirely mistaken. Revival is like Judgment Day because a holy, did you hear me? A holy God will not put up with open sin and rebellion. Finally, if we have any hope for revival in our generation, not only must we respect the Lord's counsel and respond to the Lord's conditions, but we'll have to rely on the Lord's commitment. Verse 6. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. And many times preachers in order to explain what a verse of Scripture means, have to, first of all, tell people what it doesn't mean. And what verse 6 does not mean, it does not mean that in revival, everybody gets saved. What it does say is this, all flesh will see the salvation of God. And folks, listen to me. If you've never seen, if you've never experienced genuine revival, if you've never had a fresh experience of Jesus Christ coming fresh to your heart, trust me, when that happens, everyone will know it. I said everyone will know it. Doesn't mean that everybody will be saved. But when the Lord shows up, saint and sinner alike will be aware of His presence. Not only will it be an unmistakable blessing, it will be an unmerited blessing. Because look how the verse concludes. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Just as our pastor told us earlier, Revival, just like salvation, comes only from God. He's the only one that can produce it. But just as He's the only one that can produce it, we're the ones who have to prepare for it. I almost hesitate to tell you the same story that I told the earlier group. Sometimes I think it's a discouragement. Actually, it's intended as a challenge. First time that I ever had an experience of real, genuine revival. I was a layman in a church not a hundred miles from here. 
And we knew we needed something. We had enough sense to understand that we had no idea what revival was. But we were honest with God. And so we just cried out and said, Lord, please send revival. And for three years, we prayed. That's right. You heard me right. Three years, we prayed. And those three years, God dealt with His people. He dealt deeply with His people. There were issues of all kinds that were dealt with and resolved by the grace of God. If we will be faithful to do the work of preparation, God will be faithful to do the work of production. I'm going to ask you three questions. And again, I don't want you to respond outwardly. I'm not here to embarrass you. That's not my role. But I want you to understand, even though we're not going to outwardly respond, you're going to answer all three questions. You say, no, I'm not. And I say, yes, you are. You will answer all three questions by your attendance or lack thereof the next four days and nights. You will answer all three questions by your attention or lack thereof to the Word of God as it's sung and preached. You'll answer all three questions by your attitude or lack thereof what you do, what the Lord would have you to do. In 1992, my wife and I moved to Oklahoma City. Now, I don't have the time to go into long discussion as to why we did that, but in any case, we moved there in 1992. We lived there until 1996. In those four years we lived in Oklahoma City, I learned something that I've never forgotten about Oklahoma City. In fact, I can tell you something that's happening right now in Oklahoma City. I haven't read a newspaper today. I haven't listened to telev watched television. But I can tell you one thing that's happening in Oklahoma City right now. The wind is blowing. <laughs> Very simply because the wind always blows in Oklahoma City. In fact, those four years we lived in Oklahoma City, I could count on the fingers of one hand the number of days that the wind didn't blow. I do remember one of those days I was out jogging. Pretty much all of my adult life, I've been uh, got a problem with high cholesterol. Doctors advised that I jog. And back when I still could physically do so, I jogged five days a week. And that particular day, 
I was jogging around uh, this lake in the northern part of Oklahoma City. And it was as still as death. And it was summertime. And being a Baptist, I was complaining. <laughs> Come on, folks. Confession's good for the soul. I was complaining. I said, Lord, here I am. I'm out here trying to do the right thing. And the least you could do is just, you know, bring along a little breath of fresh air. And you know what? Lo and behold, just about that minute, this little puff of wind came up. Now let me tell you a second thing about Baptists. It doesn't take a whole lot to make us happy. And I was just rejoicing. I was praising the Lord. Thank you, Lord. That was wonderful. I, I so appreciate you doing that. And about that time, I looked back out on the lake. And because the wind always blows in Oklahoma City, they have tons of sailboats on that lake. But that day, none of them had their sails up. There was no wind. But right after that little puff of wind, I looked back out on that lake, and do you know what every person on those boats were doing? They were raising their sails. Just that little bit of wind created in them a sense of expectation, a sense of anticipation that there was more to come. Those of you who are Bible teachers probably already know this. Some of you likely will not. The Old Testament was written in the language of Hebrew. The New Testament was written in the language of Greek. But both languages have this in common. The same word in either testament Translated wind can also be translated breath or spirit. Now, folks, I can't tell you how many people there are. I don't have any idea. But I do know this. Around this country of ours, there are developing little pockets of people, little bands of people that are becoming concerned about the spiritual condition of America. And they're concerned where we're headed and what the likely outcome will be. We're having these little pockets of people that are beginning to pray, to cry out to heaven. Based on this confidence, not in the confidence of Christians or our prayers, but in the confidence that we have in our Savior. That if we'll do our part in preparing, in His own time and in His own way, 
He'll do His part of producing. Now again, I'm not asking you to respond outwardly. But you ask yourself this question. Isn't that what you need down in the depth of your heart? Isn't that what you need? And really, when it comes down to it, isn't that really what you want? If it is, you'll respond, not to me, but you'll respond to the Lord as His Spirit takes His Word and applies it to you, 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 and me. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.